Financial residency podcasts are brought to you this week by weatherbyhealthcare.com. Just as the right advice helps you thrive financially, the right support team allows you to excel professionally. Weatherby Healthcare's locums experts will match you with the best jobs, prepare you for success, and provide 24-7 support. The bottom line is that working locums with Weatherby helps you earn more money and take better control of your career. If that sounds like music to your ears, head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com payday to get started. Financial Residency is proud to bring you Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Each week, Tammy Krause explores a new topic related to achieving financial independence by building and protecting your wealth. She invites guests who are experts in their fields who will share honest and valuable advice on a variety of topics. If you have an idea for a podcast, please email Tammy, that's T-A-M-M-Y, at financialresidency.com. Now grab your front row seat to this week's Grand Rounds. Hi, and welcome back to Grand Rounds with Dr. Tammy. Today, I am so excited to have with me Disha Spath. You probably know her better as the frugal physician. She's been featured on White Coat Investor, Forbes, CNBC, and all over the web. Welcome to the show, Disha. Thank you so much, Tammy. Thanks for having me. I know my name is so difficult. It's like five letters, but it's written with a D-I-S-H-A, but it's pronounced like a T-H, so it's Disha. We try to make it as complicated as possible. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, shoot. (laughs) Thank you for having me here today. I'm I'm so excited to to have you on the show. Well, let's just start with your story. I think your story resonates with everyone coming out of residency with this crushing debt. They've lived this horrible resident lifestyle and they're ready to go live the doctor lifestyle, but maybe that's not always the right answer. So let's start with you. Thank you so much. I love talking about myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Honestly, I'm not a super like outwardly focused person, but I started writing about finance when I found that I was in the situation where I felt like I was trapped. I felt like a lot of my colleagues were in the same boat. There was so much debt. There was so much expectation. I was running myself ragged at work and I just felt like I had it all wrong. And there's something that I was missing because doctors were supposed to live this awesome lifestyle. Like that's what we've been told, right? Like doctors work hard, but they have it all together when it comes to finances. And honestly, when I got there, I just, that wasn't true at all for me. So anyway, that's why I started writing about it, starting telling my story. But in truth, my story is kind of weird and not like a lot of people's (laughs) at the same time. (laughs) I uh, actually grew up in India and I moved here when I was 10. So I'm like super fresh off the boat. I mean, I guess not so fresh anymore, but I'm very (laughs) off the boat. And, you know, I remember part of the finance interest comes from my grandparents. My grandfather was the deputy collector of the town, which is kind of similar to like a mayoral position. You know, he was like the finance guy for the town. Yeah. And his wife, my grandmother was really like the actual like head of finances in the household. I mean, it was a multi-generational family and she knew where everything was. She talked to me about money all the time. She would tell me about our investments and how much debt we had to other people. Like when I was young, like Like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah. And, you know, and she was just an awesome person. She really like was very open with me about that. And I think that's why I feel like it's important to keep talking about it and keep spreading that and being open about it. When I was young, we were well off. 
because of my grandmother and my grandfather being, you know, this position, my parents were also really hardworking. My father was a super entrepreneurial guy. He had a pharmacy, he had a pharmaceutical testing facility, and he just kind of worked all the time. <laughs> oh, and a pharmaceutical distribution business too. Oh so I know he was a superstar, but he was working all the time, all the time. Anyway, that ended up kind of leading to his early demise. Unfortunately, oh, he passed no. away, you know, and there comes the interest in well-being and burnout too. I think me having seen him sort of burn out in a really fabulous fashion, it was just, it was so tragic, so tragic, you know? And so when I was 10, um, my father committed suicide oh. when, uh, yeah, TMI, so, I'm sorry, but so sorry. Oh, thank you. It just sucks, you know, there's just nothing to be said other than it's horrible. And he was just such an amazing person and it was such a loss for the whole world, really. And anyway, that happened. And then my mom decided to move us here because all of a sudden we were like kind of pariahs in India, unfortunately, you know, when someone's in India, it's still very old fashioned. I mean, about most things. Actually, no, let me <laughs> caveat that. Now it's not. Back then, it was <laughs> back then in that world, you know, you know, we're looking at a society where women used to burn themselves on the pyre with their husband if they died, you know, so like that's the basis of the society. So while we're moving forward, there's like the widow of someone who committed suicide is pretty ostracized. You know, my mom just moved over here and, you know, I can't blame her for that. My uncle brought us over here and we moved directly to Augusta, Georgia. <laughs> and uh, Culture shock. Yeah, super culture shock. <laughs> Convinced people here did not know English. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> I was like, what are you saying? Because I, I went to an English speaking private school in India and we were only like supposed to speak in English to our teachers, that kind of thing, you know? So I knew British English, but oh, Southern English, totally different. Oh, yes, totally different. Very different animal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so we got here. And we were so poor all of a sudden. My mom was a single mom, you know, with two kids in a foreign country. All we had was our suitcase. And she had a bench researcher job making 30, 40,000 a year or something like that. Wow. Uh, yeah. So we were literally like actually living in the projects, like the subsidized housing from when I was in the fifth grade, no, sixth grade to 10th, 11th grade. Yeah. So yeah, I. <laughs> it was so funny. I mean, we were like, you know, I, it was a very simple and complicated life, honestly, because there was nothing much that we could afford, you know? Sure. <laughs> so I just, you know, played basketball with the kids. And then I came home and I read books because we didn't have cable. <laughs> sure. Yeah, definitely a luxury. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There was like no activities or anything. Like now my kids have like more social engagements and activities than I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't like that at all. It was just sort of entertain yourself. And because I didn't feel so comfortable with the American English and was a super nerd, like super. Was like, <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you're so amazing today. <laughs> I look back and I was like, I had these thick glasses, super curly frizzy hair and like pants up to my nipples. <laughs> Horrible. You are this well put together, beautiful fashionista now. So if, if your younger self could see you now, she would be so jealous. Oh my God. 
<laughs> it's just amazing and wonderful where life takes you, you know, and you really cannot predict the future. It's true. There's so many like U-turns and 180 degree turns and <laughs> so many just ways. That, and I, you know, I hope to stay humble enough to realize that this may not last forever either, you know, and I try to enjoy every moment that comes because you never know when it's going to end. That's and that's true. okay. That's what makes it beautiful. That's know? true. So it sounds like you kind of came full circle. You came from a lot of money. You went mm -hmm. through this period of, I mean, no money, nothing extra. Right. right. Um, I assume put yourself through college and med school and went yeah. through that path. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, yeah, I worked my butt off and got scholarships. I had three scholarships for college and three jobs. Like, yeah. <laughs> And my mom gave me $500 a month and paid for the rent. So like, honestly, I have no idea why I came out with zero savings at the end of college. I apparently blew it all. And, you know, I kind of came out of that like, huh, I probably should have saved something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it goes fast. You know, and I was so close to starting a Roth IRA back then. They were like, I had some really awesome people at a, you know, I used to sit and study at a coffee shop all the time in Athens, Georgia. And there were some older folks there that were like, yeah, if you're interested in finance, you should start a Roth IRA. And I almost did. I almost did. But I oh, didn't. think how much you have now. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh, kick myself. Anyway. So yeah, so that's the thing. It's like, it's so easy to just spend it and not save. And it's so easy to just get dissuaded. I got scared because it was 2008-ish around that time and everything crashed and everybody was like, no stock market. Are you kidding? <laughs> Why would you put your money there? You know, oh, probably would have been the best place to put your money oh, by yeah. low. <laughs> yeah, it would have been so good. Anyway, so yeah, so I did that and then, or didn't do that, then med school and took out a bunch of debt. I went to Medical College of Georgia, which is a fabulously affordable college. And I'm so, so, so thankful for what they did for me because they provided me with some really fabulous education that I just didn't, you know, appreciate at the time as much as I should have. But, you know, we saw a ton of pathology. The teachers and the rotations were super hard. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So it was great. But unfortunately, I was, again, a total idiot. And I <laughs> took out the maximum amount of loans possible. And I lived in a very like, you know, I didn't live like a student as much as I should have. I had a nice apartment, you know, and it was very affordable in Augusta. But I made a good decision when I chose the medical school. But but yeah, I could have taken out a lot fewer loans than I did. And I probably lived it up a bit more than I should have. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So anyway, I came out of med school and residency. I uh, did residency in Nashville, Tennessee. Also awesome place to be. And uh, after that, my first job was in Savannah, Georgia and took this attending job. And I was like, I definitely chose after Nashville. I was like, you know, I think we want to be on the coast. So I looked at different jobs up and down the coast there in Florida and Florida and Georgia. And I took a job that was a private company contracting with a non-for-profit hospital and while PSLF was like on my radar and I'd been doing IDR payment during residency to try to, you know, to keep that option open, I decided to take the private job because it was on the coast and it was in this nice city and the group sure. seemed nice, you know. And once I did that, the chance of PSLF went out the window. First of all, my husband decided to go back to do his master's. He got out of the army. So he was a stay-at-home dad for us. And that was amazing. 
sucked for him. <laughs> that would be a lot of pressure. Yeah, it was not good for either one of us, actually, I don't think. For men- multiple reasons, it just didn't fit for us, you know. Part of the reason was I felt so stuck with money and the job situation because I was, we were also trying to start a family at that time and being pregnant and breastfeeding. I was literally either pregnant or breastfeeding the entire time I was there, you know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then the maternity leave, and it was unpaid maternity leave at the time. Hospitalist work, as you know, it's uh, usually, you know, you either work or you don't, you know. Right. And there's no vacation time. No. Nope. So, <laughs> so that's how it is, unfortunately. And the maternity leaves were super kind of stressful. And that's really when I came to the realization that we had a lot of debt, a lot of debt. When the cash flow stops, it becomes a very untenable situation, like very uncomfortable situation, even though we had assets and we had a rental property and some savings. But it was so it was just a very scarcity type of environment where I don't want to spend money. I was afraid to do anything to, you know, deplete our savings. And it was uncomfortable. I think we don't realize how close to paycheck to paycheck that sometimes we actually live. You know, even if you have whatever, $10,000, $20,000 in the bank, that doesn't go very far when you have big debts, big house payments, big car payments, daycare, right. all of those things. So we're really not that far from paycheck to paycheck when we really come down to it. You know, our lifestyle here in America is designed that way. Our economy is designed that way, that we take out a bunch of debt, we finance everything, and that therefore we remain trapped and tied to our jobs because we need that paycheck in order to pay the bills, right? Yeah. I mean, in other societies, that's not the standard, you know. In other societies, people actually own things outright and they don't have that many fixed expenses in the month so that if something happens, then they're not feeling so crunched, you know. This is a very American thing. Honestly, it was a cultural... I was trying to not fit in, but this was what was taught when I was younger to me was take out debt. In America, people finance cars, people finance TVs. <laughs> people finance bags true <laughs> you know just do it you'll be a doctor you'll make plenty of money don't worry it's like you know especially coming from a family that wasn't you know like my mom made like forty thousand dollars to so to her um two hundred thousand dollars seemed like a fortune right oh, absolutely and it, and for most people it does you know but i think a lot of people don't understand like the difference in taxation when you're making 40,000 versus 200,000 and when you're making That's 40 huge. you're literally not paying you know you're really not paying yeah. taxes you, you know lose <laughs> almost half at 200 yeah exactly yeah so yeah i think i did the math and it was like $70,000 a year in tax on a $200,000 <laughs> salary in, in new york you know yeah it's crazy it's a lot of money that that people don't account for you know when they're thinking about oh what can you afford or sure. from the outside while it is still a significant amount of money i don't think it's as much money as we think it is true so. so what did you do what steps did you take to actually get out of debt and put yourself back in control yeah so Josh and I actually took a very systematic approach to it. First, I read the White Coat Investor book, which was huge for me. I realized everything I'd done wrong. <laughs> I was like, not maybe not everything, but many things that I'd done wrong. And I was like, oh, okay, so I messed up. <laughs> 
but it's fixable. It's all fixable. It's fixable. Yeah. <laughs> and then I found like the Dave Ramsey podcast, right? Uh-huh. Oh my yep. God. And tell you what, that guy, you know, he gets a lot of flack, but he is consistent with his messaging. <laughs> and he's really good and motivating you to pay off debt because you really need that kind of a cheerleader to be like, what are you doing? Don't you realize you're broke? <laughs> Stop spending all your money and save up exactly. $1,000 for heaven's sake. You know? <laughs> yeah, you're stuck. Fix it. <laughs> yes, yes. Get mad at your debt, you know? And he's just so like, I would listen to that like, every day and like get really like riled up and we'd listen to it at like family car rides and stuff. <laughs> Just to keep us motivated. I'm imagining your kids on these car rides. Mom, come on. They were still babies. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So they didn't get it yet. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it was a fun time because it was really like kind of a driving, very goal focused. And the way we decided to pay off debt is we decided to do the debt snowball. Our debt lineup was pretty amenable to that. So we paid off a couple of cars first and then we paid off my student loans. So all in all, it took us about two years to pay off two cars and my over $200,000 of student debt. Oh my um, gosh, so it's like that's like 230000 Yeah. Oh my God. It was, it was like unbelievable because I didn't think it was possible. And even when we ran the numbers, I thought it would be like five years maybe, you know, yeah. for that to happen, even if we were like crunching it and like really going hard at it. But for some, somehow it just, once you start get rolling and you get that motivation, it's really fun. It gets to be really <laughs> fun. <laughs> you know, you're like, So it took us about six months to knock out the first car loan. And the second one went really fast. We actually totaled it. So that was fast. Oh, all right. (laughs) That's one way. That's one way. So we totaled it. (laughs) And so that was paid. I'm not just kidding. Well, we got the insurance payout because somebody else hit us. So we just decided to buy the same car again in cash and put a little extra of our savings towards that. So anyway, so two cars paid off within like six, seven, eight, nine months, something like that. And then it took months exactly from then to pay off my student loans. And we were paying like an average of like eight to $10,000 per month towards that. And it was, it just went, you know, it just went. Once we decided we were saving beforehand, we were just saving it in a savings account. So we decided to put a sizable amount of that towards our debt snowball when we first started. So that's why it also went quick because we had been saving previously, but we'd just been saving it up as an emergency fund. And we decided to, because we were also making changes to minimize our lifestyle instead of inflate it, we went from living in an island community in Savannah or a Wilmington Island to upstate New York, we went to this like smaller resident style size house and downsized. We downsized and we moved across the country. So that was a big deal. Wow. And yeah, it was good because we got closer to our family, Josh's family. Yeah. Yeah. So his parents were so kind to help us with the kids. So that helped with the daycare expenses as well. So Josh went back to work and his parents helped with the kids and we downsized. So we made lots of moves to increase our cash flow and create that delta. You know, and so for that reason, we felt comfortable going down to a ten thousand dollar emergency fund instead of a three month, three to six month emergency fund, and so we put a good bit of that money towards the snowball. And anyway, so it went fast, went really fast once we got motivated to do that. 
and it was really fun. And it was, it was also this really nice time to learn about finance because we weren't trying to maximize everything at that time. We were just trying to pay off the debt and we did put in, you know, enough into the retirement accounts to get the employer match, but okay. we weren't trying to max out the retirement accounts during those two years either. And so, how did you go from fixing your own finances to helping other people fix their finances? That just seems like such a huge move when you've also got this huge career and a new family and, you know, all of that going on. <laughs> you know, yeah, I honestly, I don't even know. Um, but <laughs> it just, you know, it comes from when I first started paying off debt, when we first were starting to make some good progress, I started writing about it. And I wrote my first article for the frugal physician, which wasn't, you know, born yet. I just sat down and like started writing about what we were doing because it was so amazing. And we had paid off $100,000 in six months, wow. $100,000 of debt in six months. And I was like, what? This is <laughs> crazy. <laughs> you know? And so I started writing about it, not from the perspective of being an expert, but really from the perspective of being vulnerable and being available and just sharing my story. And so I was never really trying to be a financial expert. I don't think I am still. I just know like the next step that you probably don't know about yet. <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> that's all like <laughs> just <laughs> the other, you know, people coming behind me because I knew there was a lot of people like in the same boat as me. I had talked to a lot of my colleagues, you know, a lot of my colleagues felt the same way. And so I started just writing it down like, hey, I think I figured this part out, like this debt payoff thing like this. I can speak to this. And that's where I started from. I just started writing something every week. And my husband was like, before I started writing something every week, my husband was like, why don't you, you know, put this on a website or something, start a blog, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> he's like, why don't you start a blog? I was like, a blog? <laughs> <laughs> I know I if you're like, like me, you think, who wants to read what I have to write, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I always had like secret ambitions to write a book, but I didn't think it would be on a blog, like is where I would start, you know? But he's like, no, like, listen, people, you know, do this. You just have to be consistent. Like he somehow knew how this thing worked. I don't know how. I think he just like learned it, you know, on the <laughs> internet somewhere. <laughs> But it was like, okay, so you just have to be consistent, you know, do one thing each week and just start, you know, building. And so I just, I put that first article out there and it just caught on, like it caught on a lot. I, that was, that's still my highest viewed post, <laughs> even like this, wow. so many years later. Yeah. So the week that I put it out kind of went viral and I got lucky and like my first article was viral, you know? So, and then the momentum from there was just like, okay, keep going. And a lot of it was, you know, uh, as I learned about new things, I wrote about them and it was kind of like a see one, you know, see one, do one, teach one kind of yeah. example. And it was really the a great way to learn because I was constantly getting feedback. <laughs> I bet. So if I got it wrong, I heard about it. <laughs> and I was, oh, like, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. That was like, not the right thing to say. I can correct it. <laughs> I remember there was like one real estate article I wrote and Paula Pant and like the really prominent like financial community was like, nope, wrong. Oh, <laughs> <was> like, oh <laughs> yeah, wrong. That's <laughs> trial by fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah, I mean, it's been a really fun learning process. In that process, I get to like help other people too, you know, so it's been very motivating in that way, because I'm living my life, I'm living my journey, I try to be as as open and vulnerable as possible, even though it's really hard sometimes to be vulnerable because especially when you're writing for like CNBC and like the more major media uh, spots, man, there's a lot of hate. There's a lot of hate. I can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of love too. There's a ton of love and people are like, just so kind they take the time to read other people's stuff and then they comment and make like nice comments Mm. there's like a lot of positivity there but then there are a lot of trolls like especially in major media there are a lot of trolls and and it's very easy to just want to close off but anyway i try to be open and try to share my journey (laughs) and and stay humble Well, it sounds like you came from this long line of really strong women who instilled work ethic, I mean, financial lessons from such an early age. Do you have a special penchant for trying to teach other women specifically, you know, yeah. financial journey and how to invest and save for themselves? You know, Tammy, I feel so passionate about that because not only, I mean, I come from this like line of women that really taught me about money that are very open about it, that were matriarchs, you know, like they were the ones taking care of the money. That's And that was just so inspiring. And I really kind of thought that's the way it is. But I, I don't think it is. But, you know, as I grew up, met my colleagues and, you know, we lived our journey together and I got to learn their struggles. And especially because I write about finance, they talk to me about their finances, you know, so and so I get to hear stories of other women and the struggles that we go through. And there are many, you know, there are so many of the struggles that we do encounter that just like being a woman physician, you know, or cis male physician, it's different. It's a different journey. We have a lot of advantages. Like women tend to be very careful about taking on risk. We tend to be less confident in ourselves, which is actually kind of placed to in our favor sometimes because we take less risk, right? And we research a lot before we do anything. But then again, it kind of plays against us in that sometimes we don't make the move that we should have like me starting that Roth IRA back in college (laughs) because I got scared because I let other people talk me out of it. So my goal is to make it more easy to understand instead of, you know, because a lot of times when men talk finance, they talk BTSAX and expense ratio and this kind of stuff. But like, it's in a way to sort of not make it simple for you to understand. (laughs) Right? It's made to be somewhat opaque, especially when the financial industry talks to doctors in general, even not just women physicians, but to doctors. Um, A lot of times financial folk don't explain things in a very transparent fashion and they try to make it more complex than it really is. So my goal is to just teach the basics, make make it less opaque and more transparent and then make it more accessible and take away the fear, you know, because we all have to do this in order to retire, you know, eventually, but also in order to live, in order to support our families, in order to help our patients the best way possible. Because, you know, financial, life for our patients is their life. They very much care about the finances. And I think a lot of the the times, the trouble that we're in our healthcare system right now is because doctors are so disconnected from the financial side of medicine. And, you know, we don't know what's being billed. We don't even know like what we're bringing in. We're paid in RVUs, right? It's made to be opaque. It's made to keep us 
you know, oh, you're the doctor. Just think about the medicine and we'll take care of everything else. And that's how everything goes to hell. <laughs> <laughs> True. You know, that's how dollars go out the door. That's how overbilling happens. It's just, it's an unfortunate situation that has been created, you know, through the generations, but it's on us now. It's on us. The bill that our patient gets is under our name, right? We need to know what's going on, even though people don't really want us to. I hadn't okay. really thought of the two things being so similar, but you're right. You know, let me handle your finances. Let me handle the billing for your practice. Let me do this. Yeah. And, and you're right. We've just separated ourselves from the from financial the money. side of everything. Yep. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. From in our professional lives, we're not supposed to think about the money. You know, we're now in the last 10 years or so, things are turning around, you know. Now we have a movement towards cost transparency in medicine. And we have a movement towards doctors learning about their personal finances as well, you know. And as we get come back to where we were, I think, in the beginning of medicine as the owners and the entrepreneurs, we will hopefully find some sort of a balance between being a, a business and, you know, and an effective business and outsourcing certain things, but not outsourcing everything. True. So, and it, you know, it's the same thing in life. So I saw you speak at a PMG conference back in August, I believe. Yeah. That was and, so, oh, it was so nice. wonderful. <laughs> and you talked about just some of the simple concepts. I think one of the things you talked about was Vanguard and maxing mm -hmm. out those tax savings programs that are available through work, just doing the very simple things. If you started from the beginning, you would actually be ready for retirement in 30 years. It didn't have to be crazy. It didn't have to take a degree in finance. Can you right. maybe talk to us about some of those simple things that we could start today or Absolutely. some of the new residents could start and I mean, call it good in 30 years if they wanted to. Yeah. Okay. So most residents get access at maybe not in the first year, but soon after thereafter, they're going to get access to a retirement savings account. And that's really something they should be looking at when they're looking at jobs and making sure that they have access to a retirement savings account. By the way, anyone has access to retirement savings accounts. All you need is earned income. You can always contribute to a Roth IRA as long as you have earned income or a backdoor Roth if you earned too much income. Right. And if you like, if you're employee, then you have access to either 401k or 403b usually. And if you work for an employer that also the option to contribute to a 457, that's another account that you could also contribute to. If you are not employed and you're the business owner, then you can contribute to other accounts, many other accounts, in fact, like a solo 401k. If you have a high deductible plan, you can also contribute to a HSA as long as it's eligible. So there are so many different accounts that we can contribute to. And the biggest thing that doctors and, you know, lay people in, in general need to know is that these accounts are shopping carts. They're way, they're a safe place for you to put your money. You put the money in these accounts and then you take the step to invest that money in investments in stocks, bonds, or whatever else you want. And that's how people get in the stock market. That's how all of us are already in the stock market, whether we like it or not. <laughs> we are all in it already. If you're contributing to a retirement account, then you're in the stock market. So the question really is, you know, the way people do well is by minimizing costs in their investments, making sure other people aren't 
skimming off the top of their investments, letting it grow for a while, and kind of just keeping an eye on it and knowing what's happening there. As long as you're keeping an eye on it, looking at the fees and looking at the growth every once in a while, that's all you need to do. But the fact of the matter is, is these retirement accounts provide a very safe place for you to put your money because creditors don't usually can't go off after this money. If you get sued, this money is generally safe, right? And the government is giving you a tax break. The government wants you to put money here because they don't want people to be broke when they go and retire, right? (laughs) When they're older. So they're going to give you a tax break. So all, you know, we talked about the $70,000 pay in taxes. Government says, yeah, I know that's a lot of money I'm taking from you. Guess what? If you save some of it in your retirement account, then you don't have to pay taxes on it. And that's a pre-tax contribution. Or they'll tell you, okay, if you want to pay taxes on it now, then you can, which is a Roth contribution, but then I'm going to not tax any growth. This money is going to sit there and grow in the stock market. I'm not going to tax those at all. And I'm not going to tax it when you take the money out. And you can just take that money out and not have to pay, you know, a single penny of tax later. And that's a Roth contribution. That's it. You know, those are the the government tries to give you a tax break. They're trying to give you a tax break. So might as well take it. It sounds so simple when you say it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. People think, you know, we're talking tax evasion. It's totally like government wants you to get this tax break. It's they want you (laughs) to do the things that they want you to do. And they try to hang these carrots in front of you for you to, to just so you you do it they want you to retire uh, to retire comfortably so they want they give you a tax break to contribute to a retirement account they want you to create housing for other people so they give you tax breaks to be a real estate investor you know there are many different ways the government encourages certain behaviors and so you know that's why not take advantage of that it's good for everyone so so yeah and if you just max out your available retirement accounts every year you can retire early. Like you could retire in 15 years if you maxed out three or four of these accounts every year. That's it. You just max them out and you invest them in, you know, low risk index funds, low cost index funds, maybe not low risk, but low cost index funds. And as long as you sit on it and don't pull your money out when the market drops, you'll be fine. You know, the you know, we started off with, we don't know what happens in life and things might be there. There's a lot of uncertainty, uncertainty there. You know, there's always going to be uncertainty and, but there's no reason to sit out from the stock market, but just because it's uncertain because there, there are safe investments, there's safer investments, there are less volatile investments. And then there are more volatile investments that just, that bring you more cash, that bring you more return in the future for to reward you for taking that extra risk. But, but that is totally customizable. You know, that's a choose your own journey. So you can choose how much risk you want to take, but there's no reason to sit out the stock market because guess what? Inflation is 8% right now, eight to 10% right now. So if you let that cash sit there, you're going to lose 8% a year. That's a huge amount of money to lose simply because you're saving, right? Simply because you're too scared to invest. So is it better, you think, to go ahead and get that money that's sitting in your savings account? You know, say you had a six-month cushion. Is it better to take it down to three-month cushion, get into the stock market when it's kind of depressed at this point, and then watch it grow? Is that what you're saying? Not exactly. Okay. I'm saying that I'm saying that if you have extra money or if you're saving money, you should be putting it in your retirement accounts and letting it grow and investing it. Yes. Now, 
when it comes to, okay, what's my, what does my household situation look like? How big of an emergency fund should I, do I really need to have right now? That's a much more personal decision that's based on your life circumstances, you know? So if you are later on in life and you have plenty of savings and you're worried about, you're just wanting to get the most out of that cash and have it work for you, then yeah, it would make sense to put in the stock market instead. But if you're early on in your career, you have, you're trying to buy a house next year, you're trying to have a child next year, then it may not be a great time to be putting to be whittling down this the emergency fund and to putting half of that, you know, in the stock market. So it really depends on what your next five years looks like, probably. And so that brings us to the importance, the super importance of having a conversation with our families and coming up with a written financial plan. So this is not a, each person's written financial plan is completely unique and you know unique to their situation but it generally involves number 1 having an emergency saving of some sort and then deciding how much that minimum needs to be for us for most people is 3 to 6 months of saving of their monthly spend so the minimum amount that you need to support your household per month, take that and multiply that by three or six. A six month fund is a six month emergency fund is a very well funded emergency fund. Some people like to keep that in cash and that's okay. It doesn't matter what you do with that emergency fund. Honestly, people are always trying to maximize their emergency fund. But listen, it's for emergencies. This is not the money that's supposed to be growing for you. This is the money that keeps you sleeping well at night. <laughs> <laughs> Right. This is the money that if something happens tomorrow, listen, if I need to walk away from my job tomorrow, I know that I have X amount of money in my bank account and I can support my family for the amount of time it needs to find a new job to credential and, you know, to credential with insurances to get the licensure. I mean, as physicians, it takes us about three to six months to change a job generally. Sure. So we need to have that in our savings account, I think, so that we can, you know, we can have that freedom because it sucks to be tied to a it job. Does. <laughs> it does. Freedom is priceless. <laughs> it's priceless. Exactly. And the freedom that the price of that freedom does not need to be in earning interest. Okay. It's great if it does, <laughs> you know, it's great <laughs> if it does, but this is the money that, that is, you know, that buys your freedom. So, so I keep mine in CDs, which right now are earning like 2%, you know, 2%, that's fine. I, you know, that's great that as long as it's accessible, the biggest thing is that I need it to be accessible yeah. when I need it. So that's the emergency fund. Then you go to, then you decide, okay, how much debt do we want to carry? Which debts do we want to carry? Which ones do we want to pay off? Which retirement accounts do we want to contribute to? Do how much do we want to contribute to our kids' college savings account? Oh, you know, which 529s do we want to fund and how much? And, and then after that, you know, after all of those goals are met, then you say, okay, if we have extra cash, what do we want to do with that? Do we want to put that in the stock market? Or do we want to save up for a real estate property investment? Or do we, you know, want to build an attachment to our house or something, you know, and spend it, you know, which is okay and totally valid as well. But that's the sort of waterfall that you need to go down and write it all out. Write out the goals, the five-year plan, the 10-year plan, the 15-year plan, um, it doesn't have to be super specific, but the more specific you are, the more chances you are, that the higher the chances that you're going to actually be successful, the more specific you are. You write it down 
And then anytime you come to a, a juncture where you have to decide, what do I do with this money? You go back to your written financial plan. Okay, so what's the next thing? What's the next thing I need to do according to this? Just go with that. Because that takes away a lot of the extra stress, takes away a lot of the strife, you know, what should I do? Should I do this? Should I do that? And not to say that as you're not still going to have that. Everyone still has that. Sure. <laughs> and things change. Yeah. And things change. Priorities change, but it's a good starting point and it's a customized starting point. So that makes it really takes away that indecision and, you know, analysis paralysis that a lot of us get caught up in. I think it would get you on the same page with, you know, your significant other as well. Make sure you guys have right. the same goals in mind, which is huge. Huge. Yeah. I mean, these conversations are priceless because a lot of the times we don't, we kind of assume that our partners totally get us and can read our mind. And that's not true. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yes. Speaking from experience. <laughs> well, what's next for you? Where are you going from here on your journey? So right recently, I just joined the White Coat Investor, a podcast, their podcast host, uh, along with Jim. And so that's where I'm going with my, you know, financial journey, the education journey. And I'm also going to write a book for women physicians. How exciting. Uh, Yes, I'm super excited and super nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said that was one of your goals. So this is, is. this is incredible. It's, you know, the, it's such a huge opportunity. I can't, sometimes it's so huge that I kind of have a hard time starting, <laughs> but, sure. but, you know, it's, it's humongous to be able to share my journey and then also just to write out like the practical tips, the practical things that women need to do to just get their financial house in order and create better futures for their families, for themselves, for their patients. And these are the small steps that we need to take. And this is the information that needs to be available to everyone. So, you know, it's a book. So books in general are very affordable. It's not a $2,000 course, you know, you get to sit down and read it and then learn everything that you need to know to just get started, to get going, to get that financial plan in place, and then move on and live your life and enjoy the moment, you know, and not have to worry about money ever again, at least not to the point where you're deciding whether to eat or to take care of your family, whether to stay at his job because you have to feed your children, you know, or not, you can be freer to explore your happiness, you know, to make your reality possible. And finances are the way to do that. You know, money gives you the freedom you need to create your happy place, <laughs> your balance, it. you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very, very excited to write it. And it's going to be coming out in April, or rather it's due in April, and it'll be coming out sometime after that. So that's my next step. I can't wait to read that. Your story <laughs> is fascinating. I'm so glad you came on to share it with us today. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you so much for having me here. And thank you for all that you're doing to create, you know, the financial knowledge that we all need and the conversations we need to have. Thank you for normalizing all of that. And thank you for creating what you are, you know, creating. I appreciate that so much. Just realize we are not trained as physicians to take care of our finances. We don't learn it in school. We don't learn it in residency. We don't yeah. teach each other because we've all had these very different journeys. So that's mm -hmm. kind of my goal with financial residency is to bring the education to physicians. Yeah. So important. So important Absolutely. that we all talk about it. <laughs>
Well, thanks for being on the show. And I hope you will all turn in next week for Grand Rounds. If you're ready to start boosting your earning power with locums, head over to weatherbyhealthcare.com slash payday to learn more.